Hey, it's Scott Petrak with another episode of the Brown Zone Zone Coverage Podcast. For those new to the pod, I've covered the Browns for the Chronicle Telegram since 2004, and all my work can be found at brownzone.com. Once again, I'm joined by Dave Chodowski of the WKYC Morning News. How are you, Dave? And are you ready to talk some Browns? Well, you know, I'm always ready to talk some Browns. I'm doing well. Hope you had a good uh, holiday weekend, Scott. And uh, good to be back in Berea for you, right? Yeah, it was nice. Um, I was out of town for the one rookie minicamp practice they had. So this is the first time I'd been in Berea and watched some form of practice. I'm doing some air quotes around practice. Um, since <laughs> I want to say the Friday before the Chiefs playoff game, um, I think we were out there, but you know, there might've been weather factor. There might've been a COVID factor. The practice schedule was so kind of wonky at the end of the season, but it would have been one of those final weeks in either the regular season or the playoffs that we got to watch a practice out in Berea. And I'm thinking it was before that cheats game. So that's a long time for me to go without seeing a football practice. So it was good, you know, good to see friends in the media. Good to see um, some of the guys running around on the field, Kevin Stefanski doing some coaching. So you know, I think it's a sign, you know, it's kind of weird. I'm fighting the, you know, we're heavily into the offseason. And, you know, this is kind of a down period, again, with the air quotes. But it's also a signal of training camp's coming. And it's about seven weeks away. And I think we, uh, I'm going to have to get ready for some football because I know how high the uh, anticipation level is going to be once we get to the end of July, if we aren't already there in, you know, June 3rd. Can you give the listeners kind of a, a feeling of what it's going to be like. And, and I know that listeners and Browns fans aren't there at practice every day. They will be allowed to come to training camp again, which is a good thing. But do you feel like it's going to get back to normal? Do you feel like we're going to have uh, a packed first energy stadium and I, we're allowed to have capacity now. Right. But right. did you get right. a sense yesterday that things are heading back to normal or is it still kind of in limbo? Yeah, that's a good question. Chad. I, I think, I feel pretty confident about the stadium being hundred percent right. If the Indians are allowed to have hundred percent capacity of progressive field, I can't imagine the Browns not having hundred percent. And I know that's what the NFL expects and is planning for unless something goes haywire with the pandemic. As far as training camp, the Browns have not released anything regarding that yet. I know the league had a meeting, I think it was a week ago, maybe two weeks ago where the plan is to have, fans at training camp um but you've been out there there's not a lot of room separating the practice field from where the fans are and I'm just not sure how that works logistically with the team trying to have whatever the number is you know is it the 2,000 they normally have is it a thousand is it 500 like where do you put the fans um is do you assume all your players have been vaccinated so it's not a big deal if they're somewhat close to fans who aren't vaccinated? Are there autograph signings, which is a huge part of a normal training camp, right? Players, usually a position group goes and signs autographs for, I don't know, it feels like a half an hour, um, sometimes after practice. So I think that is still to be worked out. I can tell you the media, whether you're vaccinated or not, was required to, were required to wear masks at practice yesterday and we came nowhere near the players. So I think there's still stuff to work out there. I know the hope is to have, you know, fans at training camp in Berea. 
I'm sure the union, the NFL Players Association, will have something to say about it. Are they comfortable with it? Um, one of the other reporters, I think it was Zach Jackson of The Athletic, just said, why don't they move five practices to the stadium? Then you can space out. Nobody's close to the players. Um, you probably dodge some iffy situations or some, I don't know, some things that could give the Browns organization some headaches by doing that. Um, but it feels like the plan is to do it in Berea, but I don't think we're there yet. So correct me if I'm wrong. I think I saw 55 out of 90 players were there yesterday. And, and this is uh, what a three day thing this week. Yeah. It's three days of OTAs this week, four days next week. And then the three day mandatory mini camp, June 15th through 17th. And yeah, we okay. counted, you know, we always take attendance and we counted 55 of the 90 players on the roster there. Five of them weren't really practicing due to a variety of injuries. You know, Grant Delpit coming off the ruptured Achilles, Jojo Natson coming off the torn ACL. Rookie Anthony Schwartz had a sleeve on his leg. Rookie linebacker Tony Fields II was in a walking boot. And then D-Tackle Malik McDowell, the guy with the troubled history, was a former second-round pick who they yeah. signed. Yeah, who's – they signed after the draft. He was watching. It was tough for me to tell what the injury was. Um, but a specimen, you know, when you look at him, he definitely has the body that um, – the body type you're looking for. So, yeah, 55, which, you know, is way higher than I would have anticipated a couple of weeks ago or maybe a month ago after J.C. Treader and the Browns released a statement saying they weren't going to go to in-person voluntary workouts at the team facility. Um, most of the players were on defense. All of the big name players were on defense. You know, no Baker Mayfield, no Odell Beckham Jr., no starters on offense unless you count fullback Andy Janovich. Um, and, and that makes some sense. I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit more. But the defense has gone through such an overhaul in this offseason. And we could have – they could have nine new starters week one from a, a year ago that I just think there's a feeling among some of the defensive players that, hey, let's get together – Let's do it in Berea. Maybe some of the offensive guys work out together on their own. We've seen Baker throw with guys in Florida. We saw him do it in Austin a year ago. And I think it's just easier, perhaps, for the defense to come to Berea. Miles Garrett seemed to lead that charge. Um, now, not everybody was there. Jadavion Clowney wasn't there. Takaris McKinley was not there. But there were enough guys and enough new guys that that seemed a good reason for Miles and some of the other guys to show up is to try to get some continuity because there's so many new faces. Yeah, a lot to dive in there with the defense. Before we do that, though, I just kind of want to put this issue to bed. And I don't want to talk a lot about it because we've spent a lot of time on it over the last few weeks. But that what you just said is exactly what I was thinking. Like, I was kind of surprised there was that many guys there because I felt like it was going to be barely any guys at all. But that's a pretty decent number considering what we were kind of led to believe. And again, a lot of questions. I, I went through the uh, transcript. Um, I didn't uh, listen to it, and I wasn't there, but I read the entire thing, and it seemed like there were a lot more questions pelted at Stefanski about the voluntary situation and if they're getting the amount of work done they need to get right. done. Uh, can we just kind of put that to bed here? And, you know, it, 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 is it an issue or not? Yeah, for sure. And I felt like that was the opportunity to ask those questions yesterday. Now, Next time we talk to J.C. Trutter, I'm sure it will come up again. And even when we talk to Baker, right, why did you skip OTAs, assuming he doesn't show up next week? But 
this is the first time we've talked to many of these players. It's the first time we've talked to Kevin Stefanski since they've been back on the field. So it seemed like the right time. I, I thought Stefanski handled it well. He stressed that it is voluntary. And whether he was asked if it was voluntary or really on his own, he just continued to bring it up, meaning there's not going to be a penalty for guys that don't show up. And he understands the dynamic is, you know, I use the word tricky when I asked him about it. Um, complicated could work regarding JC Treader, you know, NFLPA president. He's been so outspoken. And Kevin Spence said, Hey, I understand the dynamic. There's not, there's no, you know, we're not holding against JC. There's nothing tricky about it. We get it. Um, now he did say it's valuable for guys to be there and the coaches like having the players there. And he thinks that yesterday was a good day of work and they're doing a lot of teaching on the field. They're also still continuing to hold meetings virtually, which means Baker Mayfield and JC Treader and the rest of the offensive guys who weren't there and Jadavian Clowney can log on and participate in the meetings. And he said attendance in the virtual meetings has been very good. And I think that's an important thing to remember that it's not like these guys are away from their coaches hundred percent because they're on these meetings and they're going through the installation. So, you know, and then I asked Anthony Walker and, uh, and Miles Garrett about it. And he, they said the, the dynamic within the players is good. And they understand that each player has their own choice to make. And JC Treader's good with Miles Garrett showing up to camp and to showing up to OTAs um, this week. And Miles even said, Hey, it's not like we've been here the whole time. So it feels like, there's a little bit of a compromise reached. They probably talked to, I know they, Kevin Stefanski said he talked to a bunch of the players multiple times about the offseason program and the schedule. So I feel like the dialogue's been good. And again, and he reiterated, we want players to know when they come here, it's a safe place for them to work. And that's a big issue with JC, right? He doesn't want guys, he's trying to protect the health and safety of his players. So I feel like it's kind of a non-issue um, that the players and the team are in a good space, but yet it is newsworthy because some of your biggest names aren't in Berea and probably, we don't know how the OTAs will look next week, but probably won't be in Berea until the three-day minicamp the following week. And Scott, the thing about it is, and I've agreed with you throughout these podcasts when you've talked about how, and we both mentioned it, that last year they were just fine by going yeah. virtual. But then I started thinking about it over the last few weeks, but everyone was on the same playing field, right? Everyone was virtual. Right. And now, you know, you see the stories about the Chiefs, uh, and I bring them up because the Browns played them first. And then I think I, I was seeing that, you know, Roethlisberger was talking about Najee Harris, right? The, the draft mm -hmm. picked the running back and how hard of a worker he is. And they're around each other. And I started thinking, I'm like, you know, is it going to be a disadvantage that they're not all together? And again, maybe I'm wrong and, and I'm, I'm grasping at straws here, but I, it just has to be brought up. Sure. It, it, and I think if you take a step back, you know, a handful of practices in May and June probably won't have much of an impact on September 12th when the Browns go to Kansas City. I also believe that every time you're on the field is probably helpful. Anytime the coaches can get their, you know, hands on you, it's helpful. But there's, you know, there's a fight to be had here. And J.C. Trutter is at the front of that fight saying this is not a good thing for players, at least the way the voluntary program had been set up for years with intense practices and too much contact in JC's eyes, at least 
So, you know, I was, I was talking with one of the reporters, I think it was Nate Ulrich from the Beacon yesterday, about, well, is the fact that 55 players are there and you look at Kansas City and they have near full participation. You look at Pittsburgh and Ben Roethlisberger, there, like you mentioned. Is that a win for the owners? Like, hey, the players tried to come together, tried to be unified, and yet there's still a bunch of guys there. And my first reaction is, yeah, that's a win for the owners, and we're always going to have this kind of form of voluntary offseason program. But Nate made a good point and said, yeah, but there's been concessions, and we're not seeing the same type of practices. We're seeing some teams shorten the offseason program and say, hey, come in, we'll meet for six or seven days, and then you don't have to go to mandatory minicamp. So maybe those are the concessions that JC was looking for and that it got through to the coaches that we can't have the same type of off-season program, and it will be safer for players and less injury risk. So maybe there was – maybe this prompted the changes, or at least some of the changes that JC was looking for. And my final point on the topic is, I think there's a sense of loyalty that some of his teammates have toward JC. And we're seeing that from, I think the offensive guys, I think if JC weren't enough, and this is just me, you know, putting two and two together. Um, I think if JC weren't the NFL PA president and weren't so vocal about this issue, Baker Mayfield and Joe Batonio would probably be in Berea, but they're showing loyalty to JC and, you know, when you talk about camaraderie and teamwork and all those kinds of things, I don't think that can be looked at a, as a bad thing either. All right, let's talk about what you saw. And I know it's, it, it's hard to really, you know, break it down at a, a practice like this. But anything that kind of stands out to you with the defense, because as you mentioned, those are the, the, the defenses where the big name players were. And it was important having the veterans there for the uh, rookies. Right. Yeah, these are kind of the five things that, you know, you looked around the field and said, I said, okay, I got to jot these down. And one was Greedy Williams, right? The corner that missed all of last year with the shoulder injury. Now they're not hitting, they're not tackling, but he was on the field. He went through practice and that's a great sign for a guy that, you know, left the field, I want to say August 24th, a year ago, and then wasn't heard from again. So that's a good sign. Um, Sixth round rookie, I'm going to call him a running back. Demetrius Felton. <laughs> Because that's yeah. what, right, that's what Andrew Barry, I think it was Andrew Barry, right after the draft said, we're going to call him a running back. Or but, wide receiver. <laughs> right, right, which he played both at UCLA. And I got a story, I've got, I got to write a story one of these days. I talked to his running back coach at UCLA, Deshaun Foster, who was in the league for a while, um, about, about Felton. And he played both, he played receiver, and then they switched into running back. But the first time I noticed him yesterday is when they break up from stretching and go to individual drills and he goes to the, he goes to the receiver drills. So, you know, they're, they're cross training him receiver and running back. Kevin Stefanski said he's been in both meeting rooms. He's smart enough to handle it. They love the versatility, had a couple of drops in individuals. And then in team drills made one real nice catch and then followed it up with another catch. So that's always a good sign. You know, I mean, you can't read too much into anything, but to bounce back within a practice, I think, Coaches would appreciate that. Um, Andrew Billings, right? The D tackle that the Browns signed to a one-year $3.5 million contract in March of 2020. And then he opted out because of COVID, had asthma, has asthma. So he was worried about that, worried about his family. He's back and he's huge. And I don't, you know, he, I've watched him play against the Browns because he played with the Bengals for three years. 
and never, you know, never really stood out. It was kind of a rotational player, although he started, I want to say, 30 games over the last two years with the Bengals. I don't remember him being that big. Now, I don't know if the Browns are asking him to lose weight. I don't know if that's just his body type, but it really jumps out of you. It kind of reminded me of, I'm flashing back here, but Jerry Ball, when he was – Oh, my. Right, when he was – That old, big? Yeah, I mean, he's – yeah, I think they list him at 324, something like that. Um, he looks bigger than that. And – why it stands out even more is because that's such a different body type than really the rest of the D tackles they have, you know, Malik McDowell or Malik Jackson is a tall kind of skinny D tackle. I want to say six, five, um, might be six, seven. Um, I should have my roster in front of me. Um, Malik McDowell, who I mentioned is a more of a slender, taller, athletic looking D tackle. Jordan Elliott is a little heavier than that, but not nowhere near billings. Um, Tommy, Tommy Togiai is a little squattier, um, but not, you know, doesn't look fat at all. And then you have Billings and it, it's interesting to see, okay, is he the one guy that they're going to use as kind of that nose tackle run stuffing guy play on early downs and then take him off the field. Um, you know, cause he doesn't seem like at that size, he's much of a pass rusher. Um, so it'll be interesting. It's interesting to see, does he still fit in what the Browns are looking for? Is their philosophy changed enough since a year ago when they signed him that maybe he is on the bubble heading into training camp? Because, you know, I, I, I still think of him as a starter, right? When you go, okay, what's your base defense or 4-3? I would think it would be him and Malik Jackson. But that could change, especially because Andrew Barry signed Malik McDowell and he drafted Tommy Togia and he signed undrafted rookie Marvin Wilson. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out with Billings. Um, I mentioned McDowell looks the part. All we got to do is see him stand there, but looks the part. And then finally, James Hudson, the offensive tackle from the University of Cincinnati, is an imposing figure. And they, the Browns lined him up at right tackle and left tackle during team drills yesterday. And, you know, I, I know that they're hoping that he can be one of their backup linemen, right? And you only keep three, maybe four on the roster. Sometimes you only dress two extra linemen on game day. And, you know, that might be asking a lot for a fourth-round rookie who started his college career at Michigan at defensive lineman to say, okay, you're going to be our number six or our number seven, depending on how Chris Hubbard comes back from his knee injury that he suffered in December a year ago. But he certainly, again, looks the part, has a lot of physical – he looks strong and he's the kind of guy that gets out in space and can run and block and pull in this wide zone scheme. So those are the five things that kind of jumped out at me the most. Going back to those weights. I, I just uh, saw Andrew Billings. They have him at 328. 28. Okay. And yeah, Malik Jackson that. at 285. Right. And I mean, that's a, right. I mean, that's a big deal, a big difference in Billings. is There's no way. I mean, obviously, if you just look at him from 40 yards away, which I was, and I've seen some pictures since yesterday, I would take the over on 328. Now, that doesn't mean he can't play, right? I mean, that doesn't mean yeah. he can't play. It's just, to me, the most significant part is that it's a contrast in body type, right? And it's almost like linebacker, where you have Taki Sione Takitaki, who's kind of a run defender and kind of a bruiser, who played – I thought he made a lot of improvement a year ago. But he's not Jeremiah Uwusu-Koromoa. 
and he's not Tony Fields the second. And is there space for a guy like that on this roster, right? When you're limited to 53 guys, um, do you say, okay, you know, our base defense is Billings and Taki Taki, but you might only play 10 snaps a game against some teams. Now, maybe the Ravens, who run the ball a bunch, you might play 40 snaps, right? I just think it's interesting when you talk roster construction, how Andrew Barry will view those type of guys and how important they are versus more disruptive players up front, like a Malik McDowell or like a Marvin Harrison, like a Malik Jackson. And then a linebacker, the physical, I can stack and shed blockers versus the Arusa Koromoas who you perceive as not perceive as they're they were he was at, drafted to play in space and cover and blitz and, and those are just two different skill sets and I'm interested to see how the Browns view that and how coordinator Joe Woods tries to blend those types of players all right I want to follow up on three of the points you made you don't have to go long on any one of them maybe just a, a quick thought to follow up uh, first one is when you talk about Billings a lot of people would say they're concerned about the Browns at defensive tackle right yeah do you think maybe in Andrew Barry's mind and Stefanski's mind they're like well don't forget about Billings because he didn't play last year and you know this is a guy that we're counting on big time I do I I think that when we saw Larry Ogunjobi leave in free agency and be allowed to leave in free agency and Sheldon Richardson get cut to save salary cap space I have no doubt that Andrew Barry said hey we signed Andrew Billings a year ago to be part of our rotation and a key part of their rotation and probably a top three member of the rotation and just because he sat out a year I don't think that changes he's still young he's in the prime of his career so yeah I, I do think the Browns are counting on him now he was away for a whole year so they have to see it show up and I think it's good for him to be in Berea for the OTAs and for this offseason. So, yeah, I, I think they're counting on him. But I also think that there's been a lot of movement at that position recently. And it will be interesting to see how, how all that plays out. Because let's, let's say they keep five. Well, if it's Billings and Malik Jackson and Tommy, Tommy Togiai, right? Those guys seem like three automatics. Well, I, and I'm forgetting Jordan Elliott, the third-round pick a year ago. That seems like four automatics. So then the fifth spot, if there is a fifth spot, is between Malik McDowell, uh, Marvin Wilson, who the Browns considered a steal that they could sign after the draft and gave him a bunch of guaranteed money reportedly. So how does that work, right? And then when we, there's other guys on the roster. Um, Damian Square, who's been in the league a long time, is on the roster. They have another veteran. They have other veteran guys. Um, now – you know, Malik Jackson can slide out to end. Um, maybe Malik McDowell can slide out to end. And that buys you another spot. And you, maybe you keep nine guys. And But even then, I, like, I don't think the Browns keep more than nine defensive, defensive linemen. So I, I think it's going to be quite a battle. And I think it's going to be D-tackle. We're going to watch, spend a lot of time watching at training camp and linebacker to see how they're constructed and – who, wind up, who winds up winning these jobs? Yeah. But I'll tell you, though, this is the first year I can remember in a long time where you have a 
pretty decent idea about the roster compared to years past. I mean, there's definitely going to be questions, but I mean, and that just shows you how much better the roster is. Oh, there's no doubt. And I just did, um, we went through it a little bit last week, a quick depth chart. I yeah, put right. up, yeah. And I, somebody had asked me for my mailbag. So I actually got around to it in my mailbag. I just posted it before we started recording this um, Thursday morning. And I went through, okay, these are my 53 guys that make the roster. Way too early to project, but here we go. And really, there's not a lot of tough decisions. Um, you know, you, you can slot, okay, where does Rashard Higgins fit in the receiver rotation, right? That's a question. Um, but as far as who's going to make the team, there's only about a handful of spots. And it's D-tackle, it's linebacker, it's maybe who's the sixth corner, who's your fifth safety. I mean, things that I think your average fan might not even notice, right? And guys that won't play unless there's injuries. Um, I think those are the battles we're going to be talking about where in the old days, which aren't too old, it was who's going to be your starting quarterback. Do they have two receivers that they can line up and the Browns no longer have those kinds of serious questions. Boy, just imagine the second thing I wanted to hit was Felton at wide receiver or, you know, whatever you want to call him. But man, you start thinking about the weapons they have Scott. And if, if this guy pans out and they can add him, cause you know, you, you don't want to forget about Kareem Hunt. I know he's right. a running back, but, you know, I mean, they, obviously we see what he does in the receiving game. I think Harrison Bryant's going to be uh, a stud as the years go on here. And then obviously, you know, at least for this year, you have Landry and Beckham together. Yeah. It's pretty dangerous. Well, it really is. And, and I think one of the reasons the Browns kind of slotted Felton at running back is there's not a lot of room. There's no room at receiver. If you go Beckham, Landry, Higgins, Hodge, Peoples-Jones, and Anthony Schwartz, the third-round burner out of Auburn, that's six. And they're, not, they're probably not keeping seven. So I think Felton, if he's going to stick, he sticks as that third running back. Um, you know, behind Chubb and Hunt with Janovich as your fullback. So, yeah, it, it, they're deep. They're deep in all these spots. How do they work in Felton? Do they work him into the slot at all? Um, Anthony Schwartz, how do they get him on the field in that mix? Because, you know, Beckham and Landry will play a lot. Um, how does he fit in? How do you put him on the field? And then you're taking reps away from Higgins or Hodge. And he's not as big, so he's probably not the same type of blocker, but you love his speed. And those are the intricacies that I think Kevin Stefanski and coordinator Alex Van Pelt are working through and – will be the things we notice, the differences we noticed from a year ago is how they handle, is how they're able to expand the offense in those ways. How much can you use Chubb and Hunt together? Um, you know, how do you use Schwartz and Felton and Harrison Bryant, all those guys you mentioned? I, I think that's how the offense is going to evolve, but it's not going to be easy because there's a lot of players for only five skill guys to be on the field for every, every snap. Will Durinus Johnson be out, do you think? Yeah, it, it's interesting. Maybe. Um, probably In my roster, I had him out. Now, he's bigger than Felton, right? And you got to – Felton will have to show that he can pick up the blitz because that's key for a backup running back, and Dearness Johnson has shown the willingness to do that. Now, maybe you keep a guy that's just a returner, and you figure out a way to carry that guy in your roster, and that turns out to be a Felton or a Schwartz, so you can keep a fourth running back 
or maybe even keep a seventh receiver. But it's hard to keep those extra guys at receiver running back when Stefanski runs so many multiple tight end sets, right? Like I try to go, okay, well, maybe they only keep three tight ends, you know, Hooper and the Joe Coon Bryant. But if one of those guys gets hurt, all of a sudden you can't run the three tight ends that they run a lot. So I, I, lean, I leaned toward a fourth tight end in one less running back. Um, but I think there's some gray area there. Um, you know, Stefanski, when he came, said, hey, I need a fullback. He was adamant. But Andy Janovich did not play a ton last year. Could, do they go away from fullback? Do they go to a roster that doesn't have one? That seems like a leap from only a year ago where Stefanski was so adamant about having a fullback. But maybe you play to your strengths, and your strengths are, you know, tight end receiver running back. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, that is an excellent point there. Last thing from the points you made from your five keys, is the battle between Greedy Williams and Greg Newsom II, is that the biggest battle to watch in training camp, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is, Chad, because there's so many dynamics there, right? You got your first-round draft pick. You got a guy that was a second-round draft pick only a couple of years ago but wasn't on the field, and we have questions about his shoulder. Right. That's a serious nerve injury that took a long time to even start to heal. Is he going to be able to stay healthy? Um, if he does, then all of a sudden you have a deep, a really deep cornerback room. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that will be a really good battle, um, assuming Greedy's healthy. And, yeah, I would say that's one of the few spots where a starting job is open. And then you say, OK, the loser of that battle he might not play a much because Troy Hill is penciled in to be that nickel. And I don't think greedy is built to be a nickel. Now maybe he can, you know, maybe they'll put him there and say, Hey, you got to have that versatility. I saw Newsom take at least a couple of reps inside yesterday in the slot, which I thought was interesting because, you know, I view him as an outside corner. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's going to be a really good battle. You know, just is in that limited practice yesterday, you know, you could see Newsom's athleticism, right, which is one of the reasons that Brown drafted him at 26. Um, you know, I would pencil in, him in ahead of Greedy just because, you know, Browns went and took him in the first round. But I do think that'll be certainly one of the biggest battles, if not the biggest battle. Biggest battle. All right. Probably the biggest story this week was when Miles Garrett put out on social media the, that he was heading to Cleveland. He was there. He's here, I should say. Yeah. Uh, I said there, meaning the one day you got to see him. How do he look to you? And he talked with the media. What what stood out? Yeah, Miles is Miles. And I, I felt this since the first day he arrived after they drafted him number one out of A&M. He just looks different than most guys on a football field. We're talking a an NFL field, right? He stands out. He jumps out. He's the first guy off the bus kind of thing. Because he's 6'4", whatever. Is it 268? Is it 272? Wherever he is, he's just an imposing specimen. And he moves like crazy. Anthony Walker, the new linebacker that they signed, said, I've never seen a guy that big with his kind of flexibility. Right? He said he's a huge human being, and he's crazy flexible. So, you know, I, I thought it was important that Miles came. Not, not that he needed to be there. 
I thought it was newsworthy that Miles came. And he said, like we talked about, new faces on defense. It's a long time not to, you know, hit the bags if you're some of these guys. I thought it was a good idea for the def- for a lot of the de- defensive guys to show up. So he led the way. Um, I thought from talking to Miles, and it was a good interview, and he talked for a while, the two things that jumped out were, number one, Kevin Stefanski said Miles is retired as a pickup basketball player. And the way Stefanski said it, I wasn't 100% sure he was serious. But then he doubled down on it, and then Garrett got asked about it. And Garrett said he – was, he said, I'm going to call it a Jordan retirement, a Michael Jordan retirement. He went and played baseball that one year, but then he came back to basketball. And he said, who knows what I'll do next season? Maybe I'll play basketball again. Maybe I'll play baseball. I read it as the Browns watched Miles do all these dunks and play all this basketball on Instagram and Twitter videos for the last couple of months and were scared out of their mind that their $125 million man is going to break an ankle or, you know, tear a knee, whatever can happen on a basketball court. And that as soon as they got him back in Berea, they said, dude, you have to knock it off. And, <laughs> and I don't know what his contract says, because if his contract says you can't play basketball, then I don't think the Browns would have let it go this long. Um, but I, I really think that that's kind of how it went down is, Either, hey, you know, if you do it in January or February and March, okay. But when we get closer to training camp, we can't afford a rolled ankle that costs you six weeks and hurts you as we get into the season and slows you down. So we have to cut it off. Um, And that makes sense to me, and it seemed like Miles is open to that. I can't – I have a hard time imagining Miles not playing basketball next March. I just think he loves it too much, and – he didn't buy into the retirement. It seemed like a temporary retirement to me. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting. And I understand Stefanski's point is, yeah, it's cool that Miles can tomahawk dunk and windmill. But if he comes down funky or some dorky dude at the Y is laying under him and, you know, Miles bends a knee, that's not good for anybody. So um, I think we've probably seen the last of Miles playing basketball for the next six months. Then the other thing that jumped out at me is Miles, you know, we know Miles struggled with COVID last year and he missed two games and then wasn't the same. And he said his oxygen level, I don't know if you call it his wind or conditioning, was like 50% when he came back. And that he was so kind of out of it physically that it was tough to remember like plays. Like he struggled to remember, okay, here's the play. And then couldn't think beyond that as far as, okay, what's my counter move? And how do I adjust to this if the lineman does that? Because he's just fighting from a conditioning standpoint. Now he says he's back to 100%, feels as well as he has since before, since he got COVID, which is a great sign. And he's still frustrated and hurt that the COVID really affected his run at Defensive Player of the Year across the league. And it wound up going to Aaron Donald for the third time. Now, Miles... You know, he hurt his knee a little bit in the Raiders game before the bye. But after that game, you know, I think he played about less than half the snaps that game. But then after the bye, came back, played a bunch. His production wasn't the same as it was in the first six or seven weeks when he had four forced fumbles and just, you know, I think he was October player of the year in October, I think. Um, 
there was a little bit of the dip anyway. And then you had COVID and there was a much bigger dip. And Miles is pointing to that as a big factor in him kind of dropping out of the race, which is really Aaron Donald and TJ, TJ Watt um, by the time we got to the end of the season. So Miles is focused on the team and he tries to correct you when you ask him, you know, say otherwise, but Super Bowl is his number one goal, but he really wants to win a defensive play of the year. And he's said that since the moment he got drafted, it means a lot to him. He believes he should be in that, discussion he believes he's that type of a player and a talent and he was off to that kind of start last year and then for him it's he thinks COVID was the biggest reason that he still wasn't in the final discussion you know when we got to the end of the season all right before we get to my last question for you anything else you want to put out there uh, about yesterday before we wrap it up here Uh, other uh, Anthony Walker talked yesterday. Yeah. Uh, Stefanski, obviously, you talked a little bit about Walker throughout this thing. We just touched on Miles. Stefanski seemed pretty upbeat in, in his conversation. Um, you seemed impressed by uh, Walker, it sounds like. Yeah. Anything you yeah. want to uh, throw out there to finish this off? Yeah, the last thing, um, I, I, and I'm going to try to write about Walker today. I'm going to the dentist to get a crown, so hopefully that doesn't waylay me for the whole day. Um, but <laughs> if it luck. doesn't, yeah, thanks. Suck. If it doesn't, I'm going to write about Anthony Walker just because I didn't get to write about him much yesterday. Um, a couple of points. He said he's known Greg Newsom for a while, both, North, both Northwestern guys like myself. And when he signed with the Browns, he said Newsom texted him, congrats. And Walker said, I can see you here. And then he texted him the morning of the draft and said Cleveland. And obviously the Browns wind up getting Newsom. So there's a connection there. It's a little bit of a big brother, little brother. And Walker, I think the line was, people are going to have a hard time catching the ball against Newsom. And it's a simple statement, but to say that about a rookie, um, I think it speaks volumes. And then Walker also talked about Wusu Koromoa, right? Both in the linebacker room will probably be on the field a lot together. And, you know, he said you can see all the athleticism that you need. The explosiveness, the athleticism are elite. It's all about him getting comfortable with the playbook and the mental side and what it takes to play linebacker in this league. And he compared him to Darius Leonard, who we became like super close friends with, with the Colts. Leonard was, I think, defensive rookie of the year a few years ago. So to use that comparison, you know, part of the comparison was it took Leonard a while to grasp everything, right? It's just a slow process. And that's what Arusu Koromoa is going through. But even to use that name means he feels like Arusa Kormoa has that type of talent. And he's one of the favorites to be defensive rookie of the year because I think people think he is that special and kind of that different of a player and that he will stand out on the field. And Anthony Walker agrees with that. All right. Uh, do you have time to get into these uh, 100 players, uh, the CBS ranking, or you want to hold that for next time? Um, we could talk about real quick. We can do real quick. Um, you know what? No, Chubb, let's save it. Cause there's a bunch of players that come into that discussion when you're yeah. talking about who the top 100 guys in the league are. Um, you know, just to say the Browns had five guys make the top 100 and that seems like a good number, right? Because it's less than three, a team. If you divide it, um, or actually it's three, a team, right? 96. So just over three. Um, 
So five seems like a solid number for a team with Super Bowl expectations. But I could go to five or six other guys off the top of your head that say, whoa, isn't he close to 100? So I think there's a lot to delve into there. And whether or not we get to it next week or we get into it in that kind of dead period between minicamp and training camp, I think it, it's a good discussion topic. Yeah, let's hold off on that one. Now, Baker was not in that top 100, was he? No, he was in the just missed. Um, just missed, okay. Yeah. So I want to, next, next time we uh, talk next week, I want to, uh, this is what we call a tease in the business, Scott. <laughs> where, okay. uh, we mentioned something, but don't actually get to it. But I was talking with someone yesterday, and it, and it really, um, it got me thinking that if anything happened to Baker, what would happen to the Browns? And I, I kind of want to talk more about Case Keenum and if that were to arise. So uh, it's kind of like a tease for next week if, if you think they'd be okay. And, you know, we'll hit that 100 players uh, at some point too. But I got to tell you, I'll end with this story. Good luck with that crown, man. <laughs> I, I've had a couple crowns. And this short story here for you, back in 2006, I had just met my wife a few months earlier and I took her on a family trip to Florida. Now that was brave. <laughs> on her part to go on that family trip, not knowing them that well and just meeting me a few months early. Right. Yeah. But I had to have um, a root canal and that's where you get the crown. And uh, I had to have, they, they make the crown for you. Right. So for about a week, and I don't know where you're at in this process, but I had a temporary crown and went to a party on a Saturday night in Cleveland. We were flying out Sunday morning that Saturday night my crown fell out and I swallowed it. Oh, so boy. I had an open spot on my tooth and it killed for the whole week down oh. in Florida. <laughs> oh, <Judge. laughs> it's painful, my man. It's a good thing. I don't have a lot of time to dwell on this. Cause as soon as we hang up, I'll get to drive straight to the dentist. Um, but yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm starting the process today. So I get to temporary today. So I'll be walking around with that for, I think it's two weeks before. I get right. One. Don't, I don't have any trips planned. So yeah, don't don't go out of town. Yeah, so. Good advice. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Good luck. Thanks, buddy. Well, it was great talking to you, Chud. Um, we'll do this again next week. We'll have another OTA session to talk about. We'll get into that. Um, we'll get into Case Keenum. Maybe we'll get into the rankings. Um, if not next week, at some point, where we'll preview minicamp and all the guys. It'll be back in Berea. Maybe the Jarvis Landry charity softball game is also at the end of next week. So plenty to plenty to talk about things heating up um, before we take the break before training camp. So um, thanks for everybody for listening. This has been another episode of the Brown Zone Zone Coverage Podcast. And thanks, Dave Chudowski, for joining me. We'll talk to you next week.